Namaste viewers, welcome to Jaipur Dialogue USA. And today we are going to talk about American wokeism, a cultural phenomenon which seems to be impacting all over the world. What does it, how does it affect American Indians and thereby Indians around the world? That's what we are going to talk about. And I have the greatest of pleasure in welcoming a, not only an eminent scholar, but a real wonderful studied scholar. I would call him in that way because he's he has been on Jaipur Dialogue many times, but today on Jaipur Dialogue USA, this is your first conversation with NRIs here and everywhere. So Bharatji, welcome and thank you for gracing this uh, show today. Namaskar Vibhutiji and my greeting and good morning to all my listeners here uh, in the United States and perhaps Canada and India also. And I am very grateful that I have this opportunity. We are honored. With that spirit, I wanted to first complete a home. So request all the viewers to like, subscribe, and press the bell icon and support us. Ask your questions to Bharatji because this is a very critical element that is going on. Bharatji, I was, I was seeing a Times, Time magazine article. The headline was, following Nupur's uh, case, Nupur Sharma's case, they said very openly that Hindu lives matter is a dangerous slogan. This is, an in, that, that's a very irritating and infuriating headline when they talk about that Hindu lives matter is a dangerous slogan, considering that Black Lives Matter is a universal call to justice and peace. I entirely agree with you. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, what uh, the Times has done smacks nothing else except of discrimination. You see, uh, I can counter by saying that don't the Hindu lives matter in this world? <laughs> After all, uh, they are pretty much the third or the fourth uh, denomination in terms of population in this world. And if you include the Buddhists and uh, Jains and all others of the Indic tradition, then they are a substantial part of this world. And I think uh, what people have to understand is the conflict which is really going on in India in the context of Nupur Sharma and otherwise in the broader context of what has happened in India in the last 70 years and also what is happening around the world. I fail to understand if in present day India, which is by population almost 75% Hindu, if Hindu lives become something like uh, second rate, or if Hindu rights uh, become uh, beholden to the mercy of those who wield a greater power in the name of minority, then there will be certainly no peace in India. You see, a good deal of uh, the press, I would not say the people, I would not say the people of Europe and America, uh, the people by and large coming from all backgrounds, Christian, Jewish, uh, and uh, people of European descent, etc. No. But I would say that the press particularly uh, is very biased because it looks upon Hinduism and Hindu religion as a whole as something not highly contributive to the world for thousands of years, but as something in conflict with the uh, with what is now called universal values as defined by the West. And they very often forget 
that some of these universal values, which the West claims to have and to uh, you know, teach to rest of the world, these Western values, as a matter of fact, come from civilizations that are not European or American, but are primarily Asian. Now, the West is never tired of telling us that they inherit the Greek and the Roman civilization and the Greek and the Roman values of life. Rationality, science, inquiry, religion, reaching out to divinity, inclusiveness, worship of the divine in, uh, in material terms and worship of the divine as murti or worship of the divine as uh, the Greek word for it, that was agal mata. But for us, it is murti or vigraha. Now, these are the values which the ancient Greek culture and consequently the Roman culture had. And the West says that we inherit them, that they inherit them. Now, the very simple question is, was there no connection between ancient Greece and ancient India? And most of the values that I have just cited from the Greek culture, they are common with the ancient Vedic culture. And so India has been contributing to the march of civilization right from the earliest time. And call it Hinduism or call it Sanatan Dharma or call it uh, ancient classical Hinduism. It is the same thing which has the same values Sanatan values for several thousands of years and that it, those are the values by which India is living today. Whether minority or majority, that is a secondary thing. But those are the values which include the whole world, which always say Sarve Santu, that everybody has to be happy and uh, looks upon the world as one great whole. Now, unfortunately, this kind of division, which uh, let us say the press is making, or certain uh, major newspapers and news portals in New York and London, etc., are making, they are, as a matter of fact, I would say rather prejudiced. They're prejudiced uh, in terms of this division of minority and majority which is a colonial division. This kind of division was made by the colonial powers when they wanted to administer the colonies. And it is that hangover that still uh, continues. So I fail to understand that how can such a slogan or a demand that Hindu lives matter? It's a very plain and simple plain and simple protest against the values of jihadi Islam, which says that at any pretext, they can accuse a non-Muslim of blasphemy and that they have a religious right, a sanctioned right to slaughter the non-Muslim because he or she has committed blasphemy. I would challenge anybody in the world, including, uh, you know, the news portal you mentioned. I would challenge anybody to tell me if Nupur Sharma said anything wrong, she only cited a hadith, which is an uncontested hadith in the Islamic tradition about the marriage of the Holy Prophet. And she is being persecuted as a matter of fact. And I would go to the extent of saying that the right thinking people should stand up for Nupur and ask the question that to quote a Hadith from Islamic scriptures, is that a sin? Is that a blasphemy? So 
when people are saying today in India that Hindu lives matter, that they are asking for affirmation of a principle in which you can talk about each other's religious scriptures openly, academically, in good amity, examine them and look at things that have to be shaped for the future of a better humanity. So Hindu lives, if they say that you can't slaughter us as was done and as being threatened day and night to Nupur Sharma is not something which is prejudiced against anybody. It is only asking for protection from jihadi elements. That's you are, what I have to say. You, 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 are, you are absolutely right. And not only the threat to Nupur Sharma, in reality, so many killings have already happened in yes. other places. And, yeah. uh, you know, it is, it, is, it is indeed, you know, insult to human life and human integrity that some people believing in, an, in their own faith believe that you and I are worth chopping our heads off. And that's something that, as you rightly said, we have to talk about it across the table. It has to be debated. It has to have, there has to be a dialogue and there has to be a discussion. Otherwise, it is indeed a very nasty threat. But that also brings me to another element of this thing that I'm seeing, I mean, as you, as the whole world is seeing, that everywhere in the name of X, Y, and Z, Hindus are under a very systematic attack, a very deliberate attack all over exactly. the world. Are we responding the way we must? And this is particularly relevant to the American society where we live in, and you are visiting today. You are on a summer vacation. So share with us, you know, what must people like us do? We are, after all, just about not more than 2 million, perhaps, in America. But we are being branded under so many categories of evil Hindutva, as they call it. We are as if the ultimate evil. Whereas in reality, we are the most peace-loving community, immigrant community anywhere in the world. We are hardworking and everything else. We are not a law and order problem yet. Why are we being targeted so viciously? Is it part of American wokeism that we are the target? or we are caught in the crossfire of various other struggles? Well, Vibhutiji, uh, factually speaking, we are in the crossfire as well as targets. I would put it simply that there is at this moment going on in the world a big conflict along what may be called old religious lines. You see, on one side you have uh, the Abrahamic thought, which is represented largely by Christianity and Islam, and supported by Marxism, all the shades of Marxism, right from classical Marxism of Karl Marx to the present of wokeism, you know, as right. wokeism is an avatar of yeah. the old Marxism, nothing else. Now, we have to understand the ideological struggle that is going on. And there is nothing uh, to be ashamed about it. There is nothing that we should uh, uh, not mention, talk about, discuss, quote, and also not protest if the Hindu interest is being jeopardized. As you said, that there is a target and people are trying to pull Hindus down when Hindus have contributed so much and very significantly now to the American economy since 1980s. I mean, I, I'm a witness to all that since uh, I have been visiting United States uh, in, uh, since the 60s, you know, when I came here as a student for a while, uh, although I didn't find much to study here uh, at that moment time, and uh, I find that uh, what is the 
what may be called the study of the classical West or the properly academic West is a dwindling enterprise in Europe and America today. People have forgotten what they once called their own heritage. So in spite of all that, you can see this conflict and uh, there seems to be a closeness among what may be called the people of the book. So those who believe in a book. So the Christians have their Bible, uh, the Islamics have their Quran and Hadith, and the Marxists have their Das Capital, and the Vokists have now all kinds of other idols in certain people. Now they have all ganged up in a manner that they think as if the people who worship Murtis, the people who belong to those cultures which were non-Abrahamic, which belonged to what was once called the primitive Africa or the primitive Australia. But these are people who have a very specific way of thought and a way of looking at the world, which is really inclusive and holistic. So this kind of a ideological conflict is going on, unfortunately, in Europe and America. And I have no hesitation in saying that for the time being, it seems that aggressive, orthodox, and regressive Islamic forces seem to have taken over the intellectual discourse in Europe and America. <clears throat> and people here, those who once believed in enlightenment, those who once believed in reason have to wake up. They have to understand what is really going on. For instance, I hear that uh, in the lower house in America, not in the Senate, but perhaps in the other house, they have passed a law uh, regarding what they call Islamophobia. They have not yet passed the law. The Islamophobia uh, bill, House has passed, Senate is yet to endorse it. So it is not a yes. bit yet. Yes, right. But you so are right. It's, House has it's passed. It's halfway. Yes, halfway. It's halfway. Now, I find that something uh, as contributing to uh, putting a lid on free intellectual discourse. And to my mind, uh, such a law, if at all it is made, and I hope it is not made by the American people, the P American people wake up and reject it. I hope so. Uh, if it is passed, then it goes against the very spirit of the American Constitution which rests upon the fundamental principles of the French Revolution, and Rousseau's idea of equality, liberty, and fraternity. Because what is Islamophobia? Islamophobia is only a protest against the right taken by Islam to enforce a way of life which does not seem to be in synchronization with contemporary living anywhere in the world. So polygamy, beating of women, putting women in uh, whale, uh, giving less property to women, uh, all these things which are enforced by Sharia and which are required to be kind of considered as uh, acceptable human values, these cannot be accepted. There is a crisis today, just as there was a crisis in the 14th and 15th century with Orthodox Christianity in Europe. And just as Renaissance and Reformation came up and they brought a new Christianity, if not entirely free of the old prejudice, but a Christianity which had taken step to synchronize with their own time. Similarly, Islam today has to take that step. It has to come out of a very, very old framework of thought. And 
the forces of Islam, I mean the regressive people, not all the Islamic people, not all the thoughtful uh, people in the Islamic world, but the regressive ones represented by the mullahs and by their clergy, they are resisting it. And it is nothing else except a, uh, a license which they are taking under the garb of Islamophobia to not change. So this is the real battle, which I hope the American people will wake up to. And it is in this arena that Hindus can play a very major role to establish liberal thought, to establish inclusive thought. Because unlike the Abrahamic religion, all the denominations or all the sampradayas, it is better to use the word sampradaya instead of denomination of Hindu thought or Indian thought, they all accept that there are various ways of worshipping the divine, that you can do it through icon, without icon, that you can do it through new and newer ways. So the kind of innovativeness that Indian thought, Hindu thought presents is something which is highly contributive to the future of America. And I think our uh, Hindu community should very proudly assert that because it is not asserting something for one section of people, but for all and sundry with equal welcome. That's that was what so I well said, sir. That was so well said. And your earlier point was very important that somewhere along the line, the woke, woke culture, the politically correct culture that has emanated from all of it is the fact that you are putting a lid on a dialogue, debate, and resolving scenario. And you are totally right that putting these bills in place will actually is actually detrimental and exactly opposite of the principles of American constitution. You know, I, I exactly. often say this and I will repeat it here that freedom of speech is not the ability to yap in the park. The freedom of speech is actually all about making inquiries, making this, which leads to discoveries, inventions, transformation, and change. So if we end that conversation, then And that's the issue that needs to be carried forward. So you made a call to all the Hindus to assert themselves and propagate, if not evangelize, propagate the virtues of our faith to the world around, which is all about science and technology and Sanatan. So the question then comes out is that we, majority of the immigrant Indians, and you have been part of that. You came to America as a student and you made a very funny statement that there was nothing to learn here. So that would be something, it is a very eye-opening thing because majority of us are, majority of the people came as students and made their life and living here. So you have opened a, a, a point of view which people would like to debate with you. So please do share with us in this moment because you are a very erudite scholar, you know what you are doing, you know what you're saying. Tell us, why do you think that when you came in the 60s to study here, you didn't find some anything to learn? That's something which I would, I think the most of the audience would like to hear from you. Well, thank you for asking such a pointed question. Although uh, it's personal, but then it is something that represents a, a generation and uh, which is my generation, you know, I'm 70 plus now. So uh, Indians coming to America in the late 60s and before that in the 50s, they represent a very important experience in this whole sequence of the Hindu experience of settling in America and becoming uh, able and dynamic citizens of this country. You see, uh, <laughs> when I came here and started uh, a PhD in English literature, I found 
that what was being taught and discussed and uh, asked for assignments, etc., in the graduate school was something that I had done for five years back home uh, in Delhi in St. Stephen's College. And I had, I had read almost all the books which were being read at that moment in late 60s, you know, here in United States. So I found that there was nothing so fresh and new for me. And I had done all this. Uh, it was very good because I didn't have to exert myself. I just had to refer to my some old notes and I could write out the required papers to fulfill the assignments given to me. But after a while, I thought that doing a PhD here in not only English literature, but any other literature would not be very intellectually stimulating for me because there was no air of intellectual stimulation in the academics. Now, I'm saying in the academic world in the late 60s. As a matter of fact, this is the time, the 60s, when we had the counterculture movement. And America was undergoing a very big upheaval at that time also, just as it is undergoing, it seems, an upheaval under wokeism. At that time, it was the upheaval of counterculture. But then it was something connected to India. This was the time when Ravi Shankar, Ali Akbar Khan, the great musicians came and they made a very big impact. And American music, it turned from a traditional Western European origin music to African music. And a whole new generation of musicians and composers like Jimi Hendrix and Joan Baez and all them, all of them came into forefront. And I had the good opportunity of meeting so many of these people. And there was a very big uh, intellectual ferment at that time. Now, people like Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, all those who are part of the history of counterculture. That was something interesting for me. But then they were drawing from India. So if I were to go deep into uh, in the intellectual tradition which they were trying to pursue, then I had to do it on my own in my country. So later on, when I shifted from uh, United States to Toronto, and in Toronto, uh, I was offered a PhD in Indology by uh, a very famous Indologist who was teaching at that time. Then I uh, very humbly told him that America is not the place where I would like to study Sanskrit further. I already had a background in it. So I would like to go back to my gurus. And that's what I did in 72. And after 72, my visits here were not very frequent. But when I came in 90s or even late 80s, then I found that the scenario had changed. It is at this point that a new way of thought, which was not very healthy, I must say. This is a time when so-called uh, critical theory or post-colonial thinking or deconstruction had come in from uh, Europe into the American academics. And uh, this impact of Derrida and, and this impact of post-colonial thought, uh, which was uh, propagated heavily in America by Indians like Gayatri Spivak, <laughs> was not a very healthy influence on American thought. Uh, unfortunately, the kind of intellectual insemination, if I may use the word, which was done during the counterculture days, when the great impact of Indian thought, Indian philosophy, yoga, music, etc., in 60s and 70s came into India, it was a positive thing. But all that was wiped out by critical theory, which came from Europe. And that took over the academia here. 
So in 80s and 90s, I found that here people were studying uh, certain European philosophies which were entirely nihilistic. And they were even against their own tradition of enlightenment and reason. And that's why they were post-colonial. They wanted to wipe out those very fundamental values which they had cultivated in the last 400 years. And they entered into a world of nihilism. Now, it is that world of nihilism where one value can be discarded by another person just by saying it is your value, not mine. You see, this, this whole thought, this post-colonial thought developed the idea that one man's meat is another man's poison. So I can always come around and tell you what you are enjoying is poison for me. So there can be certainly no communication between you and me. Now, this kind of intolerance or this kind of rejection of the other began in the 90s in America. And by the end of the 20s, 200 and, you know, 2020 here, it has become woke culture. So this acute desire to assert yourself by rejecting the other. You see, please mark my words. There is one way of asserting myself, that I assert myself by including you. And there is another way of asserting myself, that I assert myself by rejecting you. Now, rejecting you as heathen, rejecting you as kafir, rejecting you as the other, one who does not follow my God or my philosophy or my way of thinking, is the cancel culture. And unfortunately, it goes back to the Abrahamic thought, which is entirely opposite of the Indian system in which I include you, in which I debate with you, in which I discuss with you. And we try to arrive at a consensus because we are, we are presuming that we are not two, but we are one. You see, that this whole cosmos is one, that there is immense unity. Sarvam idam khalu brahma. Everything is one big reality. This is my presumption. This is the foundation of Vedic thought. Call it Vedic thought, Brahminical thought. <laughs> Many people call it Brahminical thought and use it as a way of putting it down. <clears throat> but if you go by what the text says, then it is this inclusiveness. And the world needs this inclusiveness. And the great people, right from Socrates, uh, of the Greek world, uh, they have asserted this inclusiveness. This is what the Upanishad said. This is what Shankaracharya said. This is what, uh, you know, uh, was said by uh, Ilango Adigal, or this is what was said by Thiruvallur, or this is what was said by Tyagaraja. This is the great Indian tradition in which I include the one who contests my view. I don't cancel anybody. Because there is no possibility of canceling. You can't throw anybody out of the universe. This is most important to understand. You, you have defined it very, very well. And I thank you so much. And I believe all the viewers are really learning something new today because they're where the cancel word comes in where the origins you know is that exclusivity and denial of inclusiveness is the root cause of all so here are two questions you know people majority of the indians in this part of the world and you are you are an experienced man because you have come to the united states to study you went back you keep coming and you have analyzed this very deeply but majority of us here are doing a living we came here, we found a good opportunity, we made good money, and we are very satisfied. So everything American is great, which 
in a way it is. America gives you an opportunity to grow and become. But at a deeper level, you know, as the saying goes, as you advance from the Maslow's theories towards self-actualization, then you realize, all right, I have had everything. Where do we go from here? And that's the time you said about it. What must we Hindus do here to contest this cancel culture in which we are the major victims? Because incidentally, I have said this two years ago. Somewhere along the line, a bright spark came to my mind, which was a very dangerous bright spark. But I suddenly felt that we as Hindus are facing an existential threat. And to make it worse, we are in denial too. We are in denial too. Sabtik ho jayega, you know. So this is something which I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. What must Hindus do and how do we assert ourselves? You know, you talked about it. How do we contest in a, in a, as a real minority? How does, how does this community literally uh, arises, awakens, and assert? Well, thank you for uh, bringing out this very fundamental fact that Hindus are not uh, thinking about themselves. So the first thing I would submit is that they have to think about themselves without any sense of self-denial. They have to square things. Uh, they have to face things very squarely. I, when I came here in the 60s, then before me, an uncle of mine had come and settled in America in the 50s. And I could see in his life that he was only a closet Hindu. You see, all his Hinduism was in one closet, which he rarely opened. It was a kind of a memory bank. And he wanted to become uh, a good American, a successful American, which was legitimate and which he did. And America offered him that. Now, this was the age of the melting pot, as the American sociologists called it. That everybody comes from different parts of the world and melts into the American way of life. Then in the 70s and 80s, American sociologists developed the theory of the salad bowl. That is, it is not as if you are thrown into one big uh, pan or one big cauldron, but <laughs> that you maintain your identity and you are in a plate, different kinds of fruits or different kinds of vegetables, and you have your identity, your separateness also. But then the hand which arranges the salad bowl is the white hand. You see, this, this, <laughs> <laughs> this was the catch. Now, I think since 200, things have become, again, very different. Uh, I cannot offer another metaphor like the melting pot or the salad bowl for the present day society. Americans will discover their own metaphor for it. But this is the time when everybody has to understand the deeper heritage from which he or she comes. So the African blacks in America have to understand their heritage, which is more than just their bodies and the Christianity and uh, civil rights given to them in America. Similarly, Hindus have to understand the intellectual heritage. Now, this does not make them in any way a non-belonging category. Because everybody who is living in America, who has settled in America, now belongs to this earth. And in the Indian system, uh, you belong to the panchatattva or the five elements. And the five elements on which you are sustained today in America are of the American soil. So you belong here. You are part of this. You are part of this, uh, uh, the great forest or beautiful garden, if I may use a metaphor. Yeah. And that you have also rooted yourself in the soil now. But 
you have brought with you something very distinctive. Just as a tree may be rooted, brought and be rooted in a different soil or replanted in a different soil, but it's still a tree which retains a lot of heritage, it would get altered also in during course of time. Similarly, the Hindu people have to now re-examine their own heritage and not see it as a contradiction to the American way of life. It is something that contributes to the American way of life. It is something which enriches the American way of life. And it is something that makes it better. I would not hesitate in saying that it makes it better. It's not some kind of a uh, cultural chauvinism or a supremacism to say that I as a Hindu have a lot to contribute and let us sit down and discuss what is it that I have to contribute. I have to contribute inclusiveness in the face of exclusiveness which is uh, preached by uh, Christians, Muslims, and even Jews, although the Jews are now rethinking in a very heavy way. Uh, I've had some very serious dialogues in the past 20 years with some of their most senior rabbis. So I know that there is a big rethink among those. But this kind of dialogue has to happen here. In order to do that, you have to understand what is the Indian heritage. And Indian heritage is not just a set of books. It is not just a matter of certain opinions, but it is something which is to be practiced also. So it includes the arts, it includes the philosophies, and includes many things. And that is what uh, is a matter of practice, which should be done here. One of the handicaps, and you have again brought out some brilliant observations here today, that we have to learn from our history and our tradition and the past and enrich the community that we live in. Now we are rooted here. Brilliant. But the problem arises for the first generation and the subsequent generations that have come is that we never received education in our own culture and tradition back home in India. Exactly. Never. Exactly. In, in terms of in a classic Hindu way, yeah. we knew everything without knowing anything. Yeah. We suffer from that dilemma. That's my favorite phrase. That, yeah. you know, when, you, when people say, I know everything. I don't need to know anything. I always ask them, then why are you in a mess? Why are <laughs> you in such a mess? The dilemma arises, we never learned anything. We were never taught anything, yeah. as a result of which, even though we are desirous, in the absence of having been educated, we borrow the twig from here, a, a, a plant from there, and we say, How does one, how does the present generation, and you and mentioned the closet Hindu, about you, one of your relatives who came in the 50s, Today's Hindus are mostly Hindus in name only. The favorite term is Hino. How does a Hindu and Indian deal with that dilemma in the current time? You see, if I can take a very convenient example in the context of America, then I would take the Jewish example. You see, but before that, talking about that Jewish example and how it can be useful for Hindus, I would uh, make another observation. You see, in the case of Hindus, there are with every Hindu two aspects of his or her life. One is the practice, the samskaras, the ways of thought, which he or she has inherited and up to a degree lives into it out of instinct. I would use the word, very simple word, instinct. Ye parampara hai, aapne kuch suna hai, aapne kuch jiya hai. Agar aap 20 saal ki umr mein aaye hai Bharat se, to aapne zada jiya hai. And you continue practicing. 
but you do not know why you act in this manner. You don't know what is the philosophy, what is the intellectual background before it. You see, this kind of schizophrenia has to be remedied. And it can very easily be remedied by a formal education of Hinduism. But this education about Hinduism or Indian culture has to be taken from Hindus and insiders. I make no, uh, you know, I make no pretension here in asserting that the Western Indologists will not help us, that the American academies are not going to help us. I have a nearly 40 years of experience of American academics. With the exception of a few people, I find that their approach to Hinduism is that of an outsider. What we need is the approach of the insider. There are, of course, some very uh, important people in America, very good academics like Ramdas Lamb and uh, several others who have very deeply gone into Hinduism. But by and large, the American universities to which the immigrants or the new citizens of Hindu citizens of America would send their children to would not find a very conducive atmosphere. And that is why we have had a very big battle now, which is going on, which has almost become political battle. So I would say, establish your own institutions here. You have 800 to 900 temples. We Hindus have made temples. We have done a great job. You see, we did this out of instinct. We made the temples but we don't know why we made the temples. Mandir to banaye, bahut achha kiya, aur bahut bada kaam kiya. It was not easy to do this. It was a Herculean task which was executed. Adds off to it. But why we made it? What does a Hindu temple stand for? What does it execute? Now when you become aware of that, which is to impart the Indian philosophical ideas, artistic ideas, aesthetic ideas. And once temples are made educational centers, your problem is solved. Here, one must understand that it is only within the context of temples, in the context of ritual, in the context of a sadhana, in the context of a meditation retreat, something practical, karma, that you can understand Hinduism, even if you are Hindu. Not just by studying books. Because Hindu philosophy is not a matter of belief. It is not a matter of faith. It is faith which comes out of realization. Or as a matter of fact, it is beyond faith. It is a matter of experience. Anubhuti, Swanabhuti. Yes, yes, yes. It is not faith. You see, the Christian idea of faith is different, as John said in the Bible, and Dante put it into beautiful poetry. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. <laughs> faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen yes. so you give your heart to things unseen without proof whereas all indian philosophies they believe in experience i shall do some sadhana i'll experience and then i know what i know so it is jnana not faith now this has to come through practice and this has to come to practice in a small way by different people. And at their stage of life, what is useful and important. 
because hinduism has always said that you will pursue the divine at the stage of life that you are that was the idea of the four ashramas it's not that you can pursue the divine only by becoming a sadhu or a monk that's right it's a totally misunderstood thing i mean there is so yeah. much of lack of understanding yeah. and supposed understanding that we right. have belittled our own sense of experience because that's what yeah. i ask people you know i i'm i'm a blunt guy i ask questions because i want to learn i ask questions hey anybody has experience of heaven or hell tell me any report any call report of heaven or hell you know like so there is no call report of heaven or hell but yet there are people who issue passports and visas to go to hell if you do this if you go to heaven if you do that it is so so it it doesn't go well with me that concept doesn't go well with me now that we have you know it is brilliant to listen to you at least i am enjoying it and i'm sure all those people who are learning something new today from you is about how do we go forward with reference to temples and things like that there are certain other issues on which we hindus are very benign non confrontation is our way of approach to things uh, we don't take things head on you use the word political part of it the how the politics of it all has changed in today's politics somewhere along the line the muslim world has captured the imagination of the democratic world they know how to take full advantage of that you know as somebody said i don't blame x for doing what they did is it's like a game of football i don't blame the opponent for scoring the goal because i let him score so if we apply the same analogy we have allowed self goals and one of the things which i find very sad is that we have lost our own identity by ceding ground to words like south asian india doesn't exist we are part of south asia how does one get stuck in that scenario because we lost our identity for no rhyme or reason no american calls himself north american he is an american he is a texan he is he is from california whatever there's a sense of pride we have forfeited our sense of pride by calling ourselves or falling to the trap of accepting the moniker of south asian how does one deal with that where did it come from how did it get established any thoughts on that well it is uh, a matter of record that the terms uh, south asian was is uh, coined by uh, some political agencies in america uh, <clears throat> in united states and then it was passed on to the academia and the academia then promoted it and uh, this is this was and is still the usual colonial uh, ploy that you diminish identity or you enlarge identity of a people or of a uh, you know kind of race or uh, some kind of people with certain features or ethnographic uh, identity let's say this whole idea of making ethnographic identity so either this is diminished you know brought down for instance all the uh, identities of which may be called hindu or hinduism or india is is diminished so that it gets lost somewhere in the broader map of south asia now this is something we have to now squarely oppose and i think every hindu in north america should simply say that i am not south asian i am hindu because hinduism made south asia why can't you say this what is south asia or what is not only south asia but southeast asia right up to vietnam the whole culture was heavily contributed for a thousand years by hinduism right from 4th century ad 3rd century 4th century ad people from india sailed 
into Burma, what is now Burma, Cambodia, uh, Indonesia, right up to Vietnam and almost up to uh, Japan. And they made great contributions and they transformed the political structure and they gave the Sanskrit language, they gave all kinds of texts and hundreds and thousands of temples were made here and Buddhism travel. So what is South Asia and Southeast Asia if it is not constructed by Hinduism? You see, I always say this and I ask people to sit down and debate it with me, particularly in the context of a text which I have studied for 50 years, the Natya Shastra, the performing traditions of India. And I ask these people, I mean, people at um, American academia, I would not like to name them, but uh, I always ask them, okay, you take a form of dance, let us say uh, in Indonesia or in Cambodia. Now, is that not created by the tradition of Natya Shastra, by the dances which must have traveled and the Acharyas who must have gone and taught those dances there? So when you see the Ram Ken, Ram Leela, where does it come from? So what is the South Asia and Southeast Asia? It is primarily Hindu. It is created by Hindu. And today it is nothing but political talk to say that, no, 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 this is not India. This is not Hindu. This is South Asia. So we must expose this. We must say, okay, let's sit down and break it down brick by brick and see what does the South Asia consist of? It consists of only two major impacts, Chinese and Indian. And this is the period when India was considered by the Chinese as a teacher. This, this is the period almost of 1,500 years when people traveled from China to learn from India and to take uh, things back to China. Now, we have to mention all these things. We have to speak out, but we must study. And I would say that practically the uh, Hindus living settled in uh, North America today, US and Canada, they have to think about certain careers for their children. You see this blind race for just trying to make them doctors and engineers or the most, most lucrative profession, this must end. You have to make your children, we have to make our children into, uh, into people who study philosophy, literature, humanities, People, we have to make our children uh, service people, those who go into the army, those who go into firefighting, those who go into the police. Unless you do that, you do not establish a close relationship with the country you live in. It is a very important thing that Hindus should go into the American army. Because if this is the nation to which you belong, then you have to serve it. And you have to serve it as a soldier also. So I think we have to enlarge our vision. You will be glad to, to enter know, the You will be glad to, sorry to interrupt. Uh, we will be glad to know that recently, yeah. after a long bureaucratic struggle, New yes. York City has an Indian Police Officers Association, Indian Police Officers Association. They got the approval for that. So Wonderful. I was, part, yes, I was part of their celebrations uh, a few weeks ago and they were very happy. There are a bunch of them. People are joining police. They are, I, I, you will be happy to know that there are many Indians who are in the armed forces yes. and, and the Air Force. I've met a couple of them in Washington, DC and they came yeah. for Indian events. So, but that numbers are not large yet. Right. You are right. You, numbers are not large yet. The other point which you said that instead of sending the children to lucrative jobs, they should prepare to do 
philosophy and other studies to enhance their cultural part of it but then you know we have to also remember that majority of the indians who came here to came for material well-being so you know that is also very important <laughs> to how does one but then i would put it this way that we have to identify children because not all children need to be an investment banker we are smart about with because of stem education we are smart to be successful but we also have to be smart about our own preservation right now only, we are a threat you see not only that uh, i would talk about something which may be considered uh, a little obsolete mm -hmm. the the whole idea of varna in india is something which is based upon the primary trait of a person yeah that if you have an intellectual bent of mind then it is your uh, destiny to pursue that and to shine out and have your material well-being in that so it is in that spirit of i would say true brahmin spirit not in terms of uh, what is called uh, cast but in that intellectual spirit that people should take to these professions and I, i am sure one big area where indians can enter is the arts you see the world of music the world of dance the world of theater indian arts have been one of the biggest uh, channels of propagating the best values of indian culture as a matter of fact uh, arts have been called the fifth veda it's not for nothing that the concept of pancham veda was developed in india and i think our parents should here allow their children to pursue the arts but of course with a judicious training that's right those who have the natural inclination yes. they should carry on their varna is like saying that you know you can be a brahmin and you can be a warrior you can be a shudra you can be a brahmin you can be anything whatever you want to be now varadji it has been a really wonderful to talk to you today at jaipur dialogue usa i have one question or is it just sure. a statement for from somebody boss baby uh, yes. thank you he says if you don't think your kids are dumb enough let charlie kirk make them dumber charlie kirk to launch turning point academy in pushback on crt wokism schools it's more a comment than a question uh, yes, yes. you know there is a the theory of physics is in operation everything has an equal and opposite reaction reaction yeah so the question here is again reaction and response they are two different words and they mean two different things you see Where, yeah i would yeah my answer to this would be that wokeism is not to be confronted by counter canceling you see this idea of cancel comes from wokeism now if i want to confront wokeism i would not confront it by canceling wokeism right i would say let's have a dialogue let me hear you out and please hear me out and therefore our approach should be to have a dialogue okay is this what you consider value full uh, full of value in life well i do i don't and let's talk about it and i'm sure it is through dialogue that people uh, there is breaking of ice and there is also formation of a new uh, thought i personally believe that wokeism will not last for Uh, will not last for another five years. American society is too dynamic to get uh, caught in these kinds of traps. They are, of course, uh, inclined to fall into fads all the time, and right. it's a fad right yeah. now. But I am sure, not just hopeful. I am sure they'll come out of it, and not as sooner than later. you are absolutely right it is a fad it seems a fad but it's an, it's a fad more dangerous than the fad of petrock that this country right. lived with for a while 
it, it, it all matters in the kind of impact it leaves behind because those impacts will have implications. And that's what one has to prepare for. So with this, I want to end this conversation today. It has been brilliant. It has been massive. And Bharati, thank you so much to thank you all the viewers. As I always say, Satyame Vijayate, we will triumph. Like, subscribe to the channel, Jaipur Dialogue, Jaipur Dialogue USA, and support us. Thank you. Satyame Vijayate, Nan Naratam. Thank you. Happy 4th of July to all, celebrating American Independence Day tomorrow. Thank you very Indeed. much. Indeed. Thank Indeed. you. Thank you. Thank you.